Hi, everyone. Welcome to week two. If I haven't had the chance of meeting you, my name is Madison Russ, and I have the privilege of getting to co-teach and co-write these studies with Nicole. And so, I'm glad you're here, okay? I was thinking this week, you know, there are things in this world that go well together. Tacos and Tuesdays, chocolate and peanut butter, unless you're allergic. And clearly, women's Bible study and stomach stabbings. Am I right? Like, who would have thought? So, as we try to figure out what we can learn from all the blood and guts, we're going to pray, because I know for some of you it probably has been a bit of a week since we were together last, and for some of you it might have been quite the day. So we're just going to pray for the Lord to meet us here. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the opportunity to gather again with these women. And I pray that tonight that you would quiet us, calm us, and help us to spend the next hour and a half just learning more about you through your word, by your spirit, and through your people. Lord, show us Christ in these passages tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. As we walk through the first four chapters of 2 Samuel tonight, we're going to ask the question, what did God's chosen king look like as he began to bring about God's kingdom? What did God's chosen king look like as he began to bring about God's kingdom. You're more than aware by now that we are picking up in the middle of David's story. So to help us to understand the context of chapter 1 a little more, I'm going to back up and I'm going to rehash what would have happened to David at the end of 1 Samuel. Remember, David had spent years on the run from Saul, who was trying to take his life. And at a couple points in 1 Samuel, David sought refuge among Israel's western enemies, the Philistines. <clears throat> he had one of the Philistine kings named Achish completely fooled. Achish had given David and his men the city of Ziklag, which you saw was like the territory between Judah and Philistia. When David and his men weren't busy running from Saul, they spent their days going out, attacking and defeating Israel's allies. No, Israel's enemies. <laughs> but they told Achish that they were defeating Israel's allies. So the whole time that he was in Philistine territory, Achish thought he was making, David was making Israel weaker while he was making them stronger protecting his people and his home. So when the Philistines gathered in their northern territory to strategize war against Saul and the Israelites, David and his men had to put on a show to prove their loyalty to Achish. And understandably, the other Philistine commanders thought Achish had lost his mind and refused to let David and his men fight because they were worried that he would turn on them in battle and fight against them instead of for them. So Achish sent David back to Ziklag. Now we as readers know that the Philistines went out, and that was the fight that Saul had died in. 
But David had no idea on his journey home. Remember, there was no social media, no newspapers, not even snail mail. So when he gets back to Ziklag, he finds that a group of Amalekites had come and raided Ziklag, set it on fire, and taken the wife or all of their wives and their children captive. So he inquired of the Lord. The Lord told him to go after them, and he retrieved everything, struck down many of the Amalekites, and brought home spoil. And that was the immediate context for where we find ourselves tonight at the beginning of 2 Samuel. And we're going to ground ourselves by reading the first 16 verses of chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Okay, raise your hand if you were altogether confused by this account when you compared it to 1 Samuel 31. Yeah, me too. Okay, it probably made us ask some questions like, were these details left out of the first account? Did the author realize he was running out of scroll and thought, oh, I can leave that out. I'll put it in the next one, right? How do we reconcile these two accounts? To answer that question, the original audience would have picked up on a few things that we may have missed reading it in isolation that give kind of added layers to what's going on here. One, we're told that this man showed up with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Tearing clothes and placing dirts on, dirt on one's head was an outward sign of internal grief. Wherever this guy had come from and whatever he had been doing, David would have recognized that he was in a state of grief. David asked him where he came from, to which he said that he had come from Israel's camp. And in his retelling of how he knew that Jonathan and Saul were dead, he included that he was an Amalekite. And that would have caused immediate sus suspicion to those who were hearing it. 
who had David just got back from handling after the raid on Ziklag, a group of Amalekites. So who were they? The Amalekites were a wandering group of people known for their raiding and plundering. But their history with Israel actually goes back to Exodus 17, when the newborn nation of Israel had just come out of Egypt, like had not even made it to Mount Sinai to meet the Lord. They are fresh out of Egypt, and Amalek attacks them. Do you remember hearing a story of Moses' arms having to be held up so that Israel would win in battle? That was the battle with the Amalekites in the middle of the wilderness. There was more, even more recent history between these two people groups. Because after God defeated Amalek for the Israelites in the wilderness, God told Moses that one day he would blot them out because of what they did to his people. And God determined the time for that would be after Israel had demanded a king to go out before them and fight their battles. Saul was king and had been defeating Israel's enemies left and right. And long story short, God told Samuel to tell Saul to go and wipe out the Amalekites and all they had. It was a direct command to bring the promised judgment upon the Amalekites. And Saul rejected the very word of the Lord for his own purposes. He kept the king alive. He kept other people alive. He kept back a lot of the livestock, which led to God's rejection of Saul as king. And there was a powerful scene in 1 Samuel where, where Samuel tells Saul that he has been rejected as king, and he goes to leave, and Saul reaches out and tears Samuel's robe. And Samuel tells Saul that the Lord has torn the kingdom from his hand and given it to someone better than him, a neighbor. Now, I want us to be sure and catch the thick irony here for the Amalekites being the reason that led to Saul being rejected as king and an Amalekite being the one who handed the signs of the king, Saul's crown and his bracelet to David, the better neighbor. After the Amalekite, this is kind of the third thing that the, the original people would have seen. After the Amalekite told David he was the one who finished Saul off down in verse 13, David asked where the Amalekite originally came from, to which he responded that he was the son of a sojourner. That meant his family was part of the Israelite community, which is why he would have been at battle to begin with, why he would have fled, and why he would have shown up in grief. David recognized a discrepancy there, though, which led to his question in verse 14. If he was part of the Israelite community, he should have known the seriousness of killing the Lord's anointed king. The Amalekite was executed at David's word because of his own testimony of killing Saul. So with all that in mind, how should we reconcile these two accounts? The simplest explanation so the Amalekite is lying. Why would he lie? Why would he, a sojourner within the Israelite community, come upon an already dead Saul, plunder his crown and armlet like a true Amalekite, and then travel to tell David? I think he saw an opportunity to win favor with David, who the Amalekite probably knew would be the next king of Israel. He wanted to advance himself instead of highly regarding the Lord's anointed king. I mean, if you think back when Saul ordered his armor bearer 
to kill him. The armor bearer even understood that he couldn't follow his king's orders. The Amalekite was met with the very opposite of his expectations because David was not operating by worldly ways and standards to bring about his kingdom. God's chosen king did not use the ways of the world to deal with his enemies. There will be a few abrupt interjections in our text tonight that the author used to get readers' attention. And the first happens in verses 11 and 12. When David is in the middle of getting all the information from Israel's camp and he learned that Saul and Jonathan were dead, he burst into grief. We can easily understand the Amalekites' wrong thinking, right? If we didn't know David. David had the highest regard for the Lord and therefore the Lord's anointed Saul. He had already given up two chances of his own to take Saul's life, even at the prodding of his own men. Which, as a side note, did you, did you notice how much they had grown? They tore their clothes. They mourned and wept over Saul and Jonathan and Israel. They had learned to view Saul rightly because of David's example. And the end of chapter 1 is a lamentation that David wrote to process his grief of losing Jonathan and Saul. He wrote it as a song to teach to the people of Judah, and it was called the book of Jashar, the book of the upright, which commentators think was like a collection of heroic war songs that they would sing in times of battle. And if you saw the footnote during your own reading, or you were reading from a translation other than the ESV, you might have seen that the song was called The Bow, after Jonathan's weapon. The repeated refrain of how the mighty have fallen showed David's respect for his sweetest friend and the man who set himself against David as a bitter enemy. David honored both Saul and Jonathan in verse 23 by giving a picture of their physical strength in battle, but also of their father-son relationship, which was probably very difficult to navigate considering their difference of opinion on David. David called on the daughters of Israel to mourn Saul because he had given them a time of prosperity. David mourned for Jonathan himself. The covenant love that they shared, David said, was more extraordinary than romantic love that he'd experienced. And in our own context, we have a malnourished view of deep and selfish friendship, in my opinion, especially among males. So the last part of that verse gets taken out of context and sometimes made to say things that it doesn't. The original word for the love Jonathan and David shared, even back when they were making and renewing their covenant, was a love with political connotations. And that's certainly not a category of love that we're familiar with today. We should be drawn back to where their friendship began, with Jonathan stripping himself of his royal clothes and weaponry and selflessly handing them to David. Jonathan recognized David would be king instead of himself. David promised not to wipe out Jonathan's family at the time of transition, which would have been considered a great risk in other ancient Near Eastern kingdoms. David and Jonathan shared a selfless friendship. I want us to see that David lamented the loss of Jonathan, the friend he loved as his own soul, soul and Saul, the enemy that had wreaked havoc in David's life. Because God's chosen king grieved over his closest friend and those who rejected him. Now that David knew Saul was gone, this was a moment of transition. 
And in 1 Samuel, at times of transition or confusion, David often inquired of the Lord and didn't force his own ideas, plans, and time on the situation. He trusted the Lord would bring him to the throne in God's perfect timing. And at the beginning of chapter 2, David asked if he should go to Judah. And the Lord said yes, specifically to Hebron. And you mark that town on your map this week. And some of you might, might wonder why we even have a map, map there and why we ask you to mark things on it. But one, it's a tangible way of remembering that the events we're studying happened in real places, among real people, in real time. Two, sometimes the distance between two cities or the border territory gives depth to what you're reading. And lastly, some places have significance in Israel's history that we hope, after studying it, seeing it on a map, that the next time you come across it, you might remember it. Hebron definitely had a history that the Israelites would have easily remembered. Hebron was where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and Leah were buried. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel's story, the ones to whom God initiated and renewed a covenant with, saying that he would make them a great nation, that he would bless them, and that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. When Abraham initially purchased land at Hebron as a burial for his wife, Sarah, it still belonged to the Canaanites. It was Abraham's start in the land that God had promised to him. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had all died without seeing the full fruition of the promise, and they were all buried at Hebron. In one sense, Hebron was where God's promises had been held and now it was the place God called David to go to, to continue keeping his covenant promises to his people. David obeyed, and everyone with him moved back to Judah, where the house of Judah, David's own tribe, anointed him as king. He had already been privately annoyed, anointed as king by Samuel, but this would have been Judah's way of agreeing with what the Lord had already said, and showing their support for him as their king. When David had gotten settled in Hebron, he was told of how the men of Jabesh-Gilead bravely retrieved Saul's body along with his sons from the Philistines to give him a respectful burial out of gratefulness for how Saul had protected them before. David sent messengers to Israel's northeastern territory, opposite of where Hebron was, and his messengers told them that grateful, David was grateful for what they had done, he hoped that the Lord would bless them for it and that Judah had made him king and that he would be good to them if, if they would have him as king too. But we're left to think the men of Jabesh Gilead left David on red because the author cut immediately to let us know what was going on outside of Judah. Saul's uncle and military commander named Abner had taken one of Saul's surviving sons, Ishbosheth, and made him a sort of puppet king in the north. You saw as the story progressed that Abner was definitely the man in charge in Mahanaim. And as a helpful side note, remember these are still the new days for Israel's monarchy. Before Saul, they operated as a loose confederation of tribes working together when they had to. In the future kingdom split, Judah will have another tribe in the, in the southern kingdom, so two tribes and the remaining ten will be in the north. So while that's not the same exact line that we see, the current fracture here is where the later separation began. 
So David had his own tribe behind him, and the other 11 had rejected him and chosen Saul's son under the thumb of Abner. David was already king of his own tribe, but not yet accepted by the whole of Israel. God's king in God's kingdom was already and not yet at the same time. Commentators presume that Abner found out about David's message to Jabesh Gilead in Ishbosheth's backyard and wanted to put a stop to any agreement between the two parties, which was what led to the rest of chapter 2. So to quickly summarize, Abner took his men off to Gibeon, where David's commander Joab and the rest of David's servant servants met them. And essentially, Abner proposed a 12 versus 12 battle with the hope that his men would win and what uh, support David had won would fail. Turned out those 24 men killed each other. There was no clear winner, and the onlookers broke out in a fight. The three sons of Zariah were told her there. Zariah was David's sister, so David's three nephews. Joab, who we already met, that's his military commander. Abishai, who we met in 1 Samuel, he was one of David's mighty men that went with him into Saul's tent when he was sleeping, the second time that David spared Saul's life. And then we're introduced to their little brother, Asahel, that the author tells us was lightning fast. Asahel took off after Abner. He knew it would be quite a blow to Israel to take out their military commander and hurry up the process of making David king over all 12 tribes. Asahel was working in his own time, in his own ideas. Abner killed Asahel in self-defense, which shocked both sides when they came across Asahel's body. And his brothers continued chasing Abner right at nightfall, where Abner collected a group of men and hollered down at Joab. And we're going to look at what he said in chapter 2, verse 26. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. Abner manipulatively called a truce by pulling the, Hey, we're all one big happy family card. We're all brothers. Though it was... Joab's brother, who lied dead because of Abner. And I asked you about how you read Joab's response, because it seemed like he's saying, man, thanks. I just really needed to go to bed, and I didn't want to fight all night either. But after reading most of the scholars, the original language lent itself to more of a, hey, if you wouldn't have spoken up this morning and started this whole thing, there would be no reason for my men to be in pursuit of yours. And while the loss of Joab and Abishai's brother will shape the next chapter, Joab's side came out on top, only losing 20 men to Abner's 360. Chapter 3 began by telling us that the house of David was becoming stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul was becoming weaker. To show an example of David's house growing, the author gave us a list of David's wives and sons born to him at Hebron. A king's success in the ancient Near East was often gauged by the number of wives and the number of sons a king had. Y'all, we already know where David's story is going. Sometimes I think we boil him down to being perfect prior to 2 Samuel 11. 
That's just not the case. David's imperfections were already evident and will be explored more throughout our study. I'm going to quickly make the point that this is where the Bible is being descriptive, not prescriptive. It's telling us what David had done, not God giving the green light and the thumbs up and prescribing multiple wives. In fact, the original audience would have known that this was a direct violation of what God had already told Moses and given laws concerning the kings of Israel. The kings of Israel were supposed to be different than the other surrounding kings. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says that the kings were not to acquire many wives. David has six. His imperfections were already showing. We've got to hold that intention with all the good we're seeing him do too. David was human. All the while Saul's house was growing weaker, Abner was making himself strong. He more than likely took Saul's concubine, Rizpah, which was a way of laying claim to the throne, and his great-nephew called him out on it. And Abner did not like being questioned over what he viewed as a trivial matter. In a fit of anger, he threw away all of his efforts of keeping Ishbosheth propped up as the leader of the northern 11 tribes. So we're going to read his little fit in 2 Samuel 3, verses 8 through 11. And Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan all the way in the north to Beersheba all the way in the south. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. After that, Abner sent messengers to David and pridefully boasted that it would be his hand to bring the kingdom to David. And David agreed to make a covenant with Abner on one condition. He was to bring Michal, David's first wife, Saul's daughter, before he could come into the king's presence. And I asked you to think about why David would want Michal back at this point. He already has six wives. This was a test for Abner, first and foremost. Would he follow through with this command to then talk logistics about putting, them, to putting everybody together? Or was this just a trick? Another possibility at play was David would have Saul's daughter as one of his wives. That would warm him to, to those who were still supporting Saul's family. And we're given, gosh, we're shown this super sad scene of Paltiel, Michal's husband, like following and weeping after her. Big mean Abner tells him to go home. And honestly, it's a messy situation that's only going to get worse for her. We're going to see that next week. We have to remember here that she would have still been with David had Saul not pledged her to someone else while he was on the run from him. In verse 17, Abner told on himself, did you see it? According to his own words, the elders of Israel had been seeking God or seeking David as their king. He outright said that he knew that God had promised David would be king. Because of Ishbosheth accusing Abner of sleeping with Saul's concubine, 
Abner had decided to do a total 180 on his outright rejection of God's chosen king. David made a feast for Abner where they discussed plans to continue bringing the other 11 tribes to David, including Saul's tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is going to be the tribe that's the hardest to get to come on board because they're not going to want to give up their, their being the royal tribe. And David sent Abner away in peace and security. Joab, who we're going to see just be such a complex character, showed up right after Abner left. And he immediately jumped to the worst case scenario, telling David that he was only there to deceive him and to spy. Without David's knowledge, okay, the author told us that again and again, David did not know. Joab called Abner back. And thinking everything was good, because that's how he left David, Abner didn't realize that he had reason to worry about Joab. Joab asked for a word in private, and Joab struck him in the stomach. The text mentioned that Abishai was part of this later and that it was done because Abner had killed their brother Asahel. Here's the deal. God had given laws to Israel for avenging blood. Okay, If someone who wanted to seek justice of a loved one that they believe was wrongly killed, the one who killed and the one who wants to avenge the blood would go to a city of refuge, they would make their case, and then a group of people would rule whether the, the one who killed should be executed or not. But Abner killed Asahel in self-defense in a battle that had just broken out. Joab knew what a group of people would rule if he sought God's law to avenge Asahel. So he took his own revenge. He disregarded the proper channels to determine what was just, and he ignored his own king's desire for peace and security over Abner. And he killed him. David was unhappy to say the least. Again, God's chosen king did not deal with his enemies in worldly ways. David was trying to build a bridge with Abner and the other 11 tribes. And Joab had put all of those plans to great risk. David invoked five curses on Joab's family. Discharges and leprosy would have prevented an Israelite from entering the tabernacle to worship. Having to be at a spindle would have been like a physical disability that uh, you couldn't work unless you were sitting. Continued fighting and death by the sword and a lack of bread, a lack of physical nourishment. David commanded Joab and all the people to mourn for Abner. David was in Abner's funeral procession. He grieved at Abner's grave, leading the people in their own mourning. And we see a second limit of David in chapter 3, verses 33 and 34. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. David fasted and grieved for Abner, the same as he had done for Jonathan and Saul, another man who had spent years making himself an enemy of God's chosen king and leading others to reject him, that had just become a potential ally and friend. Here yet again, God's chosen king grieved over a friend and those who had rejected him. The people of Judah and Israel were watching David closely, wondering if he had anything to do with it. Was this his plan all along for Abner to be killed? And they take note of his grief and they recognize that this was not his doing. Although David claimed gentleness 
Other translations said that he was without power. He was weak. And he didn't do anything outside of giving his nephews a good tongue lashing. Instead, he called on the Lord to deal with Joab and Abishai's evil and wickedness. And while the Lord is the ultimate judge, yes, let me tell you, I think that this was another one of David's imperfections were being shown. He was the king. Who else could have gotten Joab under control? David's passivity here is a dark foreshadowing cloud with more events regarding Joab, but also other relationships to come. Now that the actual leader of the north was dead, we're headed to chapter 4 to check in on Ishbosheth. We're going to read the first four verses. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bana, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Rimen, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Poor Ishbosheth was not okay. He didn't seem like the bravest guy with Abner, and now he was without any courage on his own. Then we were abruptly introduced to two raiding captain brothers, men that were Ishbosheth's servants, men that were a part of Ishbosheth's tribe of Benjamin. But before we settle in for the last stabbing, the text shifted again to mention another one of Saul's royal descendants a son of Jonathan, with a few details of how when his nurse heard that his father and grandfather were dead, she fled with him. Because the normal thing to do in surrounding cultures, if, if, if anybody wanted to take over the kingdom, they would come in and they would slaughter all the remaining descendants, anybody that was going to be an obstacle to the throne. And as she was fleeing, he fell and became unable to walk. His name was Mephibosheth. And I cannot wait to get more acquainted with him in week four. Like I told you at the top, the author's interjections always have a purpose. The two royal remaining descendants of Saul were a completely uncourageous son and a physically disabled grandson. We're meant to hear the refrain in our heads. The house of Saul was becoming weaker and weaker. Rika Bimbana were about to put the nail in the coffin of any chance of Saul's dynasty remaining. And they walked into Ishbosheth's house pretending to get wheat. They were not strangers. They knew their leader's house. They knew his schedule. Ishbosheth was taking his post-lunch nap, unable to defend himself, and they stabbed him in the stomach. And they didn't stop there. They beheaded him and they hauled his head down to Hebron to show it off to David. Let's read chapter 4, verses 8 to the end of this section. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Reuben, the Berethites, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, 
When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Like the Amalekite, Rechab and Bana thought they were doing the king a service by bragging about offing his competition. Like Abner, they thought they were the ones bringing the kingdom to David by their hands and their timing. And like Joab, they thought that worldly ways would work in this new kingdom of God's. Rechab and Bana were executed, and the author gives us just a little bit of added irony. That Ishbosheth's head was buried with his puppeteers. All of those men were wrong in their thinking of what God's king would look like to bring about God's kingdom. God's chosen king did not give himself over to the ways of the world. David did not operate, operate like other kings in regard to how he handled his perceived enemies. God's chosen king grieved over his friends and those who rejected him. David mourned deeply over Jonathan, Saul, and Abner. God's chosen king was okay with God's timing of his kingdom. It was already, and it was also not yet. David had one tribe with him, and he was patiently waiting on the other 11, not forcing his own timing and ideas. In this week's section, we picked up in the middle of David's story and found God's chosen king in Abraham's town of Hebron waiting for the Lord to continue bringing his covenant promises about. We also picked up in the middle of an even bigger story than David's. And since we already saw tonight and will continue to see more fully that David was not a perfect king, we need to look at how this chosen earthly king pointed to God's chosen eternal king. What did God's chosen eternal king look like as he brought about God's kingdom? God's chosen eternal king also did not bend to the ways of the world to deal with his enemies. When Jesus was before Pilate prior to his crucifixion, Pilate asked him what he had done to be rejected by his own people and delivered over to Rome. In John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Christ did not operate in worldly ways towards his enemies because his kingdom is unlike any this world has to offer. God's chosen eternal king also grieved over his friends and those who rejected him. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus of Bethany were some of Jesus' dearest friends. And when Lazarus died, we're given a picture of Jesus' response to his death in the morning of his sisters before he raised Lazarus from the dead. John eleven thirty three through 35 says, When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come 
and see. And Jesus wept. The eternal king lamented for his friends. And in Luke 19, on Jesus' way to Jerusalem for his triumphal entry, Luke gives us a picture of him looking out over the city of Jerusalem. He wept and lamented over the people that would reject him to the point of death in five days' time. Christ grieved for both his closest friends and those who rejected him. God's chosen eternal king also lived in the tension of an already but not yet kingdom. At the beginning of his ministry, gospel writers say that he proclaimed, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is now. God's chosen eternal king brought God's kingdom about with a small group of people who didn't always understand how he would be the one to fulfill the covenant promises. And they pushed for their own timing and plans once or twice. He was despised and rejected, crucified and was buried. He arose on the third day and ascended back into heaven, showing God's kingdom would no longer be a temporal, earthly kingdom. He promised an eternal kingdom to come, a kingdom where the perfect king would dwell among his people forever. Christ's kingdom is already and not yet. And the Apostle John gives us a glimpse of what is still not yet for us, but one day will be. And so we are going to close by reading Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, with the glimpse of this chosen eternal king. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a king, what a kingdom, and what a God who chose his king to bring it about. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is living and active and that you have made it in such a way for us to be able to see, to see Jesus in chapters that it may not seem like we can. And I pray that in seeing him tonight, that you would conform us into the image of him. And Lord, I pray as we break into discussion groups that conversation um, would just be deep and edifying, and Lord, I would just help, help us look more like you, and ask these things in your name, amen.